Welcome to the Scene Gene Podcast. The Scene Gene Podcast highlights the voices of contemporary Arab American writers. It is brought to you by the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan Dearborn and the Arab American National Museum. Today's episode was originally published on the Halal Metropolis Podcast. Let's dive into the episode. Hello, I'm Sally Howell. I'm the director of the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan-Dearborn and a curator of the Halal Metropolis Project. Today, I'm very excited to be interviewing Camelia Youssef. How are you today, Camelia? I'm good, Sally. How are you? It's good. It's so good to see you. Nice to see you. It's so nice to see you, actually. (laughs) My mom says hi. (laughs) Well, give her a hug for me. She said to give you kisses. (laughs) Um, so I'm going to read Camelia's uh, bio really quickly. Uh, Camelia Omaya Yusuf is a poet, educator, and literary worker. She's the author of a book with a hole in it, uh, 2022 from Wendy Subway, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, she's also the co-writer of the play Kilo Batra in Death More Radiant from 2021, published by a host of people. Her poems and lyric essays have been published by Mizna the Academy of American Poets, Michigan Quarterly Review, Poet Love, and elsewhere. Uh, she's cur- she currently teaches poetry at the City University of New York, um, the, at the City University of New York, and is senior poetry editor of Guernica Magazine. So uh, any poets out there know that you can submit your work. <laughs> so how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm in Michigan for some time and I feel... Um, brought back to myself whenever I'm here. That's great. Yeah. I love the way you write about Dearborn and your, and your work. Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. So I think we wanted to start by having you read uh, a poem or two. Yeah. Um, I will read uh, a few selections from a book with a hole in it. And uh, uh, there's something else I might, I, I might add in as well. Um. What I'll actually start with is the orienting statement for a book with a hole in it. Um, So I'll read a poem, then I'll read the orienting statement, and then I'll read another poem from the text. So, this and every place has a hole in which they are buried, in which we bury them, Alive in their stories, enter no bedtime moment between a parent and child. A hole in which the parent is buried. A hole in which the child is buried. A hole in which the I is buried beneath all the selves it is supposed to be. A hole in which possibility lives. Possible enough to have existed. A candle brief enough to burn. A sapling old enough to cast a shadow. And when it is chopped or uprooted, it will have lived and shaped a clearing in the forest wide enough to mark its absence. In this book, I grapple with the violence that happened in my family, a violence that accompanied me as a nebulous, ambient fear seeming to affect every aspect of my life. This book is an experiment, and so, like a god, It asks how to love the one who is gone and also the one who is to blame and also the situation that created the situation. In the meantime, as we learn deeper, we say things towards saying, and so is grief. 
This book is an attempt at elegy, at carving out a way to say, to grieve, to redeem. A book with a hole in it is composed of fragments selected from my private journals during a four-month period in 2019. All excerpts are arranged in order of their appearance in the journals. Let's talk about the Arab problem, the title of a brochure distributed by the mayor's office in Dearborn, Michigan, 1985. I dreamt last night. I had to tell myself to enjoy and not be afraid of dying. Then I enjoyed it. Someone from Dearborn got shot in the head like a bird, his body at the side of the field. Everyone accepted it because that's how normal death actually is. Death is finally real. I am more afraid of the death of others than the death of myself. I am not immune to sentimentality. I am an architect of buildings not inhabited. It takes me a while to build a perspective. I'll read a few more. I cannot trust my instinct to love. With others, I get lost. Sunday evening, Monday morning, night, all day Tuesday and Wednesday morning with a man, naked or partly clothed, I felt powerful, not raised on the same bread, me and him, we were not, he listens to, I am worried, that kind of man. Masculinity is a dangerous place, all the guns and unchecked insecurity everywhere, the gaslight fires, the red herrings, checking IDs at checkpoints, is my desperation making me amorous? In his absence, I oscillate. A swelling love, a fist for a heart, a float for a walk, always a breath ahead of myself. That and the pit of being abandoned, his touch going stale. I feel, I feel, my body, saintly, pious, good, justified, righteous, a valid, serene, a still, pond, a measured rise, fearful and many and facing, a warrior and also an ascetic. What will words sound like in the future as we come up with new concepts closer to our humanity, our human sociality, de-alienating ourselves? Influence is tradition, prolonged presence of something plus the absence. We play house. I am not sitbet. I am writing, I am wanting, need for social acceptance, my body and my feelings, then I don't need, hopes sometimes are delusions, like what that actually means is, I need a cat, and uh, one more, I am washing the stain with my own body for the sake of gnosis, we must remember the martyrs. Recognize godliness in the, the string between us, silent, taut, and loose, your ancients and you, and therein. Thank you. I mean, there's so much here to unpack. Uh, um, I mean, it's just beautiful, evocative language, and it's very writerly poetry. I mean, it's interesting to hear it 
um, I hear it a little bit differently than I read it, which is as it should be. And, you know, especially some of the earlier things you read are so much about storytelling. So you're telling us that you're telling us a story, um, which I think helps when you read it to put together these reflections. Um, they do add up to a really beautiful package uh, and a painful package. Um, and I, I love the title, the, the, the book with a hole in it. Um, I think it's just so very evocative. Well, I mean, there's so many themes that you address here. I guess the one we have to maybe start off with is the the one that you really gesture toward in your description of what the book is about, which is about a trauma. So um, without, you know, giving anything away or asking you to go somewhere you don't want to go, tell us, tell us what you mean by this trauma. Yeah, I think... Um... So many of us know what it's like to live a life while staying silent on the things that uh, impact us most and the most like deepest, vulnerable, intimate level. I think our, our society actually uh, needs us in order for the American society as it is to continue for capitalism to work as it does for people to pick up and go to work five days a week or seven days a week uh, is they need us to be quiet about our traumas and continue to live our lives and work. And I realized that um, America is a book with a hole in it. Dearborn has a hole in it. Every place, and like in that first poem that I was able to write really because I, I have a writing group of Dearborn friends um, where you know, when I would be in other workshops, uh, I would write something that, you know, references that song. Do you love me? Do you, do you, you know, that song. So I would, I was in a workshop and I had this poem and I wrote it about that. And I took it to the class and the class was like, uh, -huh, we don't, this poem doesn't really work. And then I take it to my, my Dearborn friends and they're like, this poem is amazing. <laughs> so really it's a matter of, of audience. And so because I was in a safe writing space, I was able to, um, be able to explore that through poems, recognizing what that hole looks like. Um, and that hole actually became clear. Um, uh, that specific poem, This in Every Place Has a Hole in It, became clear after the death of Sara Hegazi, and um, who is... Uh, an Egyptian activist who in 2017 was exiled from Egypt and, and was sent to Canada in exile and didn't have community around her to support her queer Swana community, whoever it was. Um, it's just the strength of the oppression that is so great uh, that it, um, by my friend Maryam Bazid says, uh, it, Egypt guided her hand when she killed herself. Wow. Oh. And so that like the, the, a book with a hole in it is yes, about a particular central trauma that continued to manifest itself in my life in different ways as an Arab woman growing up in Dearborn. Um, and, uh, having my family's stories, um, sometimes clearly stated and sometimes completely omitted all of those living in our home, um, the silences at the, at the dinner tables. Um, this book is an attempt to say, even though I can't directly write about the trauma, I'm going to write 
uh, I'm going to speak in the meantime. And I'm not going to silence myself from speaking in the meantime. A lot of us, uh, especially in, in this community, which is what I know, um, a lot of us have these traumas that we either know of or don't know of. I mean, the war is a big trauma, the Lebanese civil war in our context, in my context, because um, we don't really hear the stories. Why would I, my, the whole family survived the war and, and escaped the war. Um, and, uh, and then they came to the United States and to ask them to like re-traumatize themselves while they're already living in the American paradigm, which traumatizes them in its own way. Um, and the American paradigm hides its own trauma. So we don't talk about, um, slavery and genocide in real ways. So America has its own big gaping holes that we need to figure out, uh, that we need reparations for immediately yesterday. Um, and so this book is my attempt to uh, give myself the right to speak, even if my trauma won't let me or my inherited trauma uh, won't let me. Or if the discourse is not ready for me to speak about this particular trauma that has impacted a Lebanese Muslim woman in her own village. Uh, I can't talk about that story right now. Um, we not that we're not ready for it. I think the language is not, I'm working, I'm studying and being strategic about how I approached speaking about the trauma, which will um, eventually find words. Um, but in the meantime, I've tried to create a form, which is, and I've encouraged others to write in this form as well. Go into your journals, the stuff you never, ever thought that you would ever share with anybody um, that toxic relationship that you went through, that's cause that's what I was going through during those four months. I was like, Oh, here's my ancestral trauma about, uh, something that happened, a gendered violence that happened outside of, you know, uh, the United States. And here I am thinking about this as I'm in a relationship with somebody. And I believe that if we look at deeply at our self-reflection, if I had studied those four months of journals, I would have avoided a lot more um, sort of reification of trauma over time. And so the, the challenge is this, like, can I look at my work, look at my, my deepest, most vulnerable writing, go in there, carve out of it some language that is useful for me and for somebody else, maybe, because uh, I want to invite you to eat at the dinner table with me at the poetry dinner table. It's not, I got that from... Terrence Hayes, who passed that from another writer who he talks about vaguely, but doesn't name. But I think if you Google, you can find out what writer actually said that you've got to invite your reader to sit at the dinner table with you instead of just eating. So I'm trying to invite you guys to sit and eat with me at the dinner table of my journals. Um, and of course, I took out a lot of cringy stuff and I left in a lot of cringy stuff. Um, and uh, so... I hope that answers the question. It does. Yeah. It's interesting because you have a line and I don't have, um, I don't have all the detail. I don't have all the pages in front of me because I printed it. I, I don't have a hard copy of the book. I have a, you know, I just printed Xerox and I don't want to make too much noise, but you talk about the person who, and I wish it was really a beautiful evocative line about the reason you write. She's the reason I, she's the reason I poet is yeah. what you say. She's the reason I poet. I just love that line. And I didn't know because you had just mentioned I feel like in the text, you were just talking about your mother in the passages right before that. So I'm like, is your mother the reason you poet? Is your mother the one who suffered the trauma? Is it the person who suffered the trauma? Or now you've mentioned this Egyptian activist 
So it could be all three of those women. It could be one of those women. Which one was it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think um, the the she uh, in that line right here, I can... Can I read that excerpt sure. for yeah. you? Yeah. Um, well, and one thing I guess you should know about me and my poetics is that uh, uh, I believe poems are containers. Um, and so they can like hold sometimes our own memories. They can hold uh, words are containers as well. So like the word Dearborn is a really loaded word. Um, and, it, you know, there's like the general and there's I'm, I'm like looking up this history right now. So anyways, it's all to say poems are containers. And so the she um, is, I kind of don't want to say. Well, she's also a container. Let's yeah, put it that she's way. A con- no, she's she's a con- the word she is a container and it could be, and I'm reading it as these possible she's yes. and it could be all of them or it could be one of them yeah. who's unnamed. That's the whole. It's the yes. whole of the whole at the center of the book. Yes. Well, so, okay. So, um, yes, you talk a lot about poetry. You talk about it as an inventory. You talk about it as a prophecy. Uh, it's obvious that for you, it's a way of knowing the world. I love the metaphor you gave of sharing the table, having other people sit at the table of, 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 of poetry. And it's a way of documenting the world. It's a distorted mirror. Tell me more about this. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sally, for like sitting with the work and, and, and talking with me about it. Cause, um, uh, I think poetry comes out of that. So poetry language and poetry and then transactional language. There's language that is the contract language, language of, um, the, the declaration of war, so to speak, right? You have like after World War II, you have Samuel Beckett, who that's just one sort of example of like, suddenly the world lost faith in language. Peace does not mean peace. Um, and so uh, one of the most useful things that I've kind of done in my study of poetry or I've learned is is how, and like so many poets have done this, Solma Sharif, Craig Santos Perez, they've taken the language of war or the U.S. military dictionary or the colonial sort of documents um, and they have repurposed them and redefined them and and shown instead of taking language at face value for its transactional value in, in the government and in the economy, uh, they're stripping that language of its power. And, and I think that that is the generative space that we have as writers, uh, a, a space that as an, like I was told what to write about by school, by my, my, my high school, right? What's, what's fitting for the school newspaper. You can't write about Arab American stuff for the school newspaper. Um, yeah, it was, it was really, I'm, I'm, I was a 15 year old girl. In Dearborn, Michigan, being raised in Dearborn, Michigan at Fordson high school at a high school. You did go to Fordson, right? No, I went to Crestwood. Oh, she moved to Dearborn Heights. Oh, that's the issue. Yeah. Because (laughs) I mean, it would just be stunning to me if in Dearborn, you weren't allowed to write about being Arab in that time. Yeah. But it's, still stunning for Crestwood too, but yeah, exactly. Cause especially the population was so, was still large at that time. Um, and I had somebody like almost like a, a teacher giving me advice, like, Hey, you know, you shouldn't really write for that for the school newspaper. Like they're giving me advice about how to be in America. And, um, so that, and then my, my reaction, so this is where trauma comes in, right? My immediate reaction for that was like silencing. And I was like, oh, I'm trusting authority. 
And so I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to internalize this and chew on it and sit with it. Because my initial reaction, whatever, for the, you know, there's like, there's uh, fight, flight, freeze and fawn. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my, my uh, half-baked theory is that uh, a lot of us are, are trained into fawning. Um, it's very gendered. Um, and, uh, and so I've been taught to fawn towards people who have, you know, um, looked at me and said, well, you can't wear shorts because, you know, I, or it's haram or like, so any, so I'm, I'm used to being very nice to everybody. Um, and so that was my first reaction for my te- to my teachers was like very nice. And then I went and I sat down and I like just like sat with myself and I journaled. My journal is my space where I can express myself. And so a lot of that, a lot of writing poetry is like knowing yourself and knowing your language patterns and knowing like when, where I must go through all of these other voices in my head um, and voices that are between me and somebody else in order for me to figure out what it is that I actually think. And, um, of course I also give myself the right to change what I think. And so we all have the right to evolve. So all of that is to say, like, that's what the space of poetry is. Poetry is like, um, and I'm, this is only me. Um, but of course, like I am the accumulation of everything that has come through me and like happened to stick around or whatever. Um, and so I actually first started writing out about this trauma in a creative nonfiction class. Um, And then my professor, I was in Los Angeles at the time, my professor was like, oh, this story is fascinating. Gendered trauma in a Muslim context. We should should option this for a film. And she was like, I will connect you to a scriptwriter. I was like, hell no, I am not going to do that. And then I ran away into coded language. I'm like, where can I keep this story safe and nuanced? (laughs) And so poetry ends up being the space where... I can, even a punctuation mark can give grace and um, grief to um, honor somebody on the page. And if I can, I can't control the world. I can't control all these things. I do believe in organizing an action. So that's my other aspect of poetry is that sometimes poetry is very frustrating for me because it doesn't necessarily translate into action unless um, unless it motivates people towards action or it gives people a space to negotiate with themselves. Well, I feel like uh, in reading this, I feel like uh, you're definitely, I mean, it's definitely, it's your solitary voice, but you're also speaking to people and you're speaking to specific audiences and you're um, you're creating community around the things you write about and the way you write and you write about community too. I, I, I don't remember which, uh, page it was on, but there's some, there's somewhere where you talk about, um, you're appreciating being part of an Arab feminist network and saying that Arab, that's one space in the Arab community or the Muslim community where queerness is embraced and accepted and not problematized and stuff like that. So I see you're gesturing, you know, you're including, um, also I think, um, and maybe this is a subject to really go into a little bit more. You talk a lot about whiteness and, um, you have a very politicized relationship, uh, to whiteness, toward whiteness, a way of seeing whiteness, a way of rejecting whiteness, a way of, um, I mean, I really thought your, your, I mean, there's large sections where you really talk about whiteness in some detail and the way it's projected onto you. Um, and, uh, uh, but also, 
um, you know, just sort of thinking about what that means, what it means to encounter whiteness as someone who does not identify as white, um, what it means to be, a, a, you know, have other people identify you in that way. But then also there's a really creative uh, focus here on the performativity of any identity. Um, so tell me about that. <laughs> I mean, I know that's a, that's a lot to put into one question, but just that this, I really like the performative nature of identity because I, I think that, um, I think we all recognize that, um, there, there's the performativity of it. And then there's also the, 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 you know, like you're talking about fawning, this is a way of performing identity. And then also there's the way in which people are reading your performance and maybe misreading your performance and how I think, especially for people in this ambiguous category that, you know, Arab, the relationship of Arabness to whiteness is very kind of frustrating and Arabs can become invisible through their whiteness or, um, uh, it's just, there's just so much ambiguity there. Right. So I think that this is a, for me, this was just a really, especially fertile and very political part of your book. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Sally, for that. Just leading all the way through that. Cause I think one, I was not able to, um, reckon whiteness is a reckoning. It requires a reckoning, um, in America in general, like it's, uh, and I've, of course I've, I've gotten a lot of this through like, um, through like studying black studies. Um, was CLR James that says that black studies is, is not the study of black studies. It's the history of Western civilization. Um, and so like, uh, people thinking that black studies is not relevant to them is like, no, actually, oh, I think we all need it. Um, and, uh, so, but to get the, how I was able to arrive at that place when I was forced, I was forced to do it because being in Dearborn, um, I was always uh, Dearborn and Dearborn Heights, even Ann Arbor. Like I was read as an Arab, uh, at, at, even at the university, I would like, I was microaggressed as an Arab, like people like very clearly saw me. They underestimated my English. They like did all these things. And, and I was like, aha, I, I'm seen, you know, I'm angry, but at least I'm seen. Um, so there's that. Uh, and then I moved to New York city kicking and screaming by the way. Cause I really, I, I got into a really good grad program. And then I was like, well, I don't want to leave Detroit. I'm so happy here. Um, and, uh, but I, I still went cause it was the smart thing to do that I needed to do for my career. So I went to New York. The one, th the two things that happened to me in New York, one, I couldn't care about everybody on the street anymore. Like I couldn't like think deeply about like, there's just quantitatively, you just can't, you know, you can't think about people in that way to, uh, it really challenges like what caring about people actually looks like in action. So, um, just a, a lot of the intimacy and the proximity to people just really shifted how I, um, my, you know, my, my dearborn Arab over familiarity, my Habib is that go all around the room, you know, like there is, there's some of that there, but there's also like, yo, I can respect somebody by like, you know, just letting them have their space and not giving them, not popping in a Habib into their paradigm that they don't really need or don't really believe in. Like you're not, people have said like, you're not my Habib. I'm like, you're right. Like, you know, what does that mean? So that has like sort of shifted. Again, we have a cultural context here that is um, that we get to practice socially. So I go to New York city and I don't have, I can't do that anymore. And people are all of a sudden reading me as white. 
and and I'm living that invisibility. When you say uh, Arabs that are red as white then become invisible, uh, well, that invisibility is actually a privilege, right? And so uh, it becomes even more excruciatingly clear when you think about. Um, uh, I'm so sorry to get morbid here. Um, trigger warning. Um, but just thinking about the rise in shootings and the racist shootings. And these guys are making split second decisions. And I know how I'm visibilized in the room or invisibilized. Like it gets very, very tangible. And so white privilege in that way is some whiteness is a currency in this country. It's been made into a currency um, because we're uh, in, in Arabs and Dearborn are in survival mode. And we're still thinking about war because of the ongoing wars that are happening in our homelands. So we think about foreign policy as directing, you know, hence the 2000 Bush vote, right? Like they vote, they vote with their foreign policies, not their domestic policies. Um, I understand that militarism is what makes America happen. It's what mobilizes also uh, white supremacy. And so we have to fight militarism. Um, but we also have to be where we are. And part of being where we are is, is, seeing ourselves not necessarily as white um because i've i've also like in this cosmos of like my figuring out whiteness on my own in my room through my journals and being mad that somebody's seeing me as white on the street i've had to like push through that and be like um i hold whiteness in my body i hold whiteness in an arab context as well i hold whiteness in a lebanese context as well um and I don't have any final answers for you right now, but I know that uh, that this is a praxis that we have to keep pushing through as a community because otherwise we're just going to keep every, we're going to keep raising generations of children who don't know they don't know how to see uh, race in America because they don't even know how to see them. Race is a construct. But they, I think that we're just going to, the, the way that colorism manifests itself in Dearborn is going to continue to reify itself. The way that we see ourselves in context uh, with, with black Americans is like huge. And like, that's the most urgent thing on, in terms of like how I think about what we need to do as a community. But again, I'm trying to figure out what do I need to, as a writer and as like a teacher, I am uh, I really admired, um, there's two particular writers, Jess Rascala and Melissa Lozada Oliva, who were at NYU right before me. And they were like, you know, they're Latino and Latina and, uh, and, uh, and Arab. And both of them were writing about whiteness in ways that made pathways for me to like, think about whiteness. Cause they would just like acknowledge the whiteness of their body. Even if it's a hairy body, they're still talking about the whiteness of their body. So I was like, okay, we're allowed so now I'm just going to push through this and then see what other people have to say. Cause I know that everybody in our community has something to say about it. And even if people are allergic to calling themselves white, that allergy is also very important. And I'm not asking people to disregard um, their whiteness, just recognize how it's being used to make you weaponized against for, weaponized further against people of color in this country or weaponized further in this like um this race war that we are living in yeah, and this hierarchy of races or 
yeah. hierarchy of color or what, however you define it. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is what I mean when I say your work is political, right? You're clearly calling out and, 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 and advancing an argument um, being made in this larger community of, of poets um, with whom you share a lot of political you know, perspective. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, so while we're on this theme of whiteness and Dearborn and, uh, I mean, we could do the, the whiteness, blackness, Dearborn history. You talk about the hole in Dearborn. I mean, there's the hole in Dearborn that was the anti-Arab racism that you called out in your poem by mentioning Mayor Guido's flyer, uh, you know, what to do about the Arab problem when he was running for mayor in the 1980s, when the community was in the middle of going through this massive transition because all the Lebanese were coming, fleeing the war. So a community that had been small and really relatively marginal, but also really well integrated because it was just another immigrant community in a city filled with immigrants. Suddenly, uh, Arabness was, you know, the the Arabs stood out and, uh, and, uh, they, they, they became different and then they were othered and othered, not just by the mayor, but he certainly exploited it politically just as, you know, several different presidential <laughs> regimes have done in the year since. I mean, it's, it's like the Republicans can't run for office these days without calling out Arabness or Muslimness in one way or another. Um, but there's also um, in Dearborn, obviously this history of anti-black racism, which really um, there would be no Arab, you know, Dearborn would not be a, the Arab majority city that it is today if it hadn't been um, a, a, like almost sort of, like the Arab whiteness enabled the Arabs to settle in a city when blacks were not allowed. Right. Mm -hmm. And it became a home for Arabs. And I think that the Arab community, I mean, uh, I think many young Arab Americans uh, welcome blacks into their city. Um, And I know that more blacks are moving into the city today, but um, there are also, I mean, many Arabs have embraced that anti-black racism that they found when they got here. And that's really definitely a part of the Arab experience here in Dearborn, too, is to inherit that racism and to take it forward. Uh, so there's a lot of complexity <laughs> to Dearborn in terms of this issue of race. So I, I guess I would like you to talk about that for a minute, because I know it's something that, that does come up in your work. But then there's another Dearborn here uh, that you write about, which is the, it's a Dearborn of real cultural intimacy. And I mean, I'm not used to reading about Dearborn. I think so many people, um, they encounter Dearborn in a moment and they let that moment, they think that that moment stands for all time. I teach history and I teach these history classes to young students, many of whom are Arab American, and they just can't imagine a history of Dearborn in which they weren't the majority, you know, uh, they, they can't imagine, you know, uh, mosques being small repurposed buildings in the South end, as opposed to these grand structures we have on on uh, Ford road and now on Warren Avenue. Um, so, um, but, and, and I think people also always think or think that Dearborn was always the diverse Muslim community or the diverse Arab community. It is today where we've got these, you know, your parents came fleeing the Lebanese war recently. We've had Syrians come fleeing their war, several ways of Iraqi migration because of the wars in Iraq. Uh, Yemenis are here. The Yemeni population is the fastest foreign born population in the county right now, 
despite all the travel bans that have been put in place and the, and the incredible hurdles that have been placed in front of Yemeni migrants. And then Afghans are settling here too, uh, not even Arabs, <laughs> you know, but they're coming to be in a community of other Muslims. So this Dearborn is so unstable as a place. It's always changing. And then in your you you have like you talk about the parent generation or visitors to Dearborn is coming to the city and having this nostalgia and you know wanting to consume Arabness and and then you're like for us it wasn't that for us it was this creative form of like hip hop music that was being made authentically in Dearborn or for us it was the the lyrics that we grew up with from a song you know so tell me more about these multiple Dearborns I, I anyway I just want to say as an appreciation I really. Um, I don't see writers getting all those Dearborns into a text at the same time mm. in the way you do. So I really appreciate that about your writing. Thank you, Sally. I think, uh, I don't know. I'm guilty of romanticizing Dearborn also too. Uh, and I say this because uh, uh, the play was really great, Kiro Batra, which is like a place-based play that was a historical, it was placed in Dearborn. We did it in Dearborn in particular. So you see a lot of, I'm talking about Dearborn as a character in the play. Um, and so I'm, I'm talking about it. And I, I played this character of myself where I am this Dearborn girl who is uh, very like feminist and utopian thinking. And uh, I think that I have hope for everybody, even like the, you know, the Walla bro. And um, then you have my my counterpart, my co-writer, Maryam, who's a, an Egyptian native who immigrated to the United States and, and um, is openly queer and is just like calling me out on all my um, romanticizing bullshit. Excuse me. You know, and it's like and it's fantastic because I was like, I, was, I need it. I, you know, I didn't realize, poor thing. I like I put them through a, a lot of, like my idealism is really robust because I was raised by uh, parents who are really idealists and organizers. And I think that's the route through which, you know, y'all, y'all met each other. And, um, and so, which is to say like, uh, Dearborn is uh, an evolving thing constantly. I've, I've left enough times and come back enough times to know. And, and when I've left, I've had anxiety. I had this like existential anxiety about Dearborn changing without me recording it. Um, and so like I lived in LA for a few years and like, and then I was there and I'm looking for activist community and artist community. And I, and everybody that I'm finding is like really like deep in the entertainment world. Um, and I kept looking for artist activists and uh, I found them that summer in Dearborn and Detroit. And so really like Dearborn, Dearborn's proximity to Detroit is, is really an essential part of, of um, it's, we have to talk about the racism that, that you, that you named and mentioned. We have to talk about the keep Dearborn clean parade that I grew up attending as a, as a kid making signs about pollution and littering when actually this was a white supremacist, we're participating in a white supremacist tradition that I think is still going. They do still have the keep the Dearborn clean parades, but they no longer sell the soap. They used to sell soap, keep Dearborn clean. Mayor Hubbard had 
bars of soap that he sold to raise money to support the parks and to support keeping Detroit residents who at the time were sort of red as black. They wouldn't ask white Detroit residents to stay out of their parks, but they could, they could ask black ones to stay out of the parks. So were they IDing people? I mean, I don't, no, if, I don't if you were, so they had signs up in the parks that said Dearborn residents only, only. and they wouldn't, you know, so if someone came into the park, like if I walked through the park, people wouldn't say anything to me most likely. But if yeah. someone who was black walked into the park, they would immediately go and say, show us your ID. If you're not a resident, you can't can't be in the park. So, yeah, just because it's not happening right now overtly with signs doesn't mean that it's not happening in other ways. That's one. And then two, it doesn't mean that those, those, the ghosts of that place are still with us. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, you know, I understand. Um, I also know that the mayor, our current mayor, who is an Arab American, um, who is a very progressive political activist and who has part of his background is, is, is an environmental studies and environmental justice and who takes the environmental justice needs of the community, not just Dearborn, but anyone who's downwind of the Ford Rouge factory or Marathon Oil, um, you know, and I think he's, he, so for him, there is a way to reclaim that mm -hmm. um, without, um, without activating all those ghosts. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they still call it a, they, they, they might, I don't know what they call the parades. They do this, this, the public schools still do parades. They still do go out and clean up the neighborhood. Um, although the resources aren't what they used to be for the city. So it's a complicated story actually. Yeah. And I don't know how it's being, how it's being articulated. I don't know the language that's being used to promote it anymore. So I don't want to say that it's definitely that they're using that sure. same trigger. Because if I were a, a you know, an older black person from Detroit and had any familiarity with this history, that would, those would be triggering words, Indeed. you know? Yeah. And then, and then there's, well, cause now what I'm thinking about is we have to continue to incur, at least in this community, all I know is this community. I, I, I'm interested in encouraging this line of questioning, which is like, have we, um, have we divested ourselves from the, uh, the, 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 ten, the tentacles of white supremacy that have, con that have, that I actually have made the foundation of this place, right? Like how much are we interrogating these things? Of course I can say this from the comfort of my office where I'm like just cooped up and sitting. And so this is where like praxis and organizing is like absolutely necessary. And I know there are groups here that are organizing, which is to say, these are all the Dearborns that I think about all the time. Right. Like I, and, and that I think about from far away that I taught, I, I've literally brought friends from New York to Dearborn, uh, to introduce them to other artists, um, to show them a Falan, a halal metropolis for them to come in and where they can go, um, you know, get all the, 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 the foods that they are, that, that war and economic strangling and imperialism has prevented them and banned them from doing in their home homelands. So they can come and access these things here. Uh, so there's one remediation that's happening there. And then they also meet with, um, you know, in an open mic space with artists and friends where they, they are exchanging and connecting um, across communities. Dearborn is some of my friends in Dearborn are the greatest ambassadors for this place. And they are like valiant fighters and organizers who are trying to keep um, doing, doing that like deep intersectional work uh, that 
stops asking this question of like, um, you know, cause here there's like this identity card thing where it's like, okay, who are you? And it's not about, it's, it's about what are you doing? You know, I it's need not, to- not what is your name? What is your family name? Which here in Dearborn, there's some very large Lebanese families in particular. And you say that name and everybody knows they think they can situate you in a grid. Mm. Um, yeah. So I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Well, you know, I learned about somebody today who I was unaware of who is running for Congress as a Republican, a Dearborn man whose name I can't remember. I just read about him in the newspaper today, who's running against Rashida and her district in this new district that's being created. And he's running as a Republican. He's a Muslim. He, he grew up here in Dearborn, he says, in a Muslim family, but he spent his summers for some reason in Missouri with a Baptist family. And this is his, in his narrative about himself, this is going to give him legitimacy with a mainstream audience. But he also has on his website, his political causes. And one of them, he has like an icon for, you know, religious freedom or, a cross with maybe a crescent over it or something like that. But one of them is CRT, critical race theory, and he has a frowny face symbol there near critical race theory. And then he has a, he has a video posted there where he quotes a, an African-American activist talking about how this is nonsense. Critical. If I couldn't have medical degrees if I were being oppressed, you know, this, you know, um, anyway, it's, uh, uh, yeah. So um, we're talking about internalizing the legacy, the, the, the anti-black racism of Dearborn, I think it's internalized quite a bit. And, and even in your generation, not just in the, in the other generations. Well, so another, um, uh, political, but not always political human and biological <laughs> in many ways, uh, you know, topic that you write about quite a bit, um, here is just, and I guess I shouldn't call it biological, but embodied that's a better word, gender, sexuality, patriarchy. Um, and I mean, it's, um, I think this gets to the trauma that you talk about. Um, uh, but you know, I just wrote down some words, power, control, confusion, compulsion, shame, desire. And then, um, all of this in your, in the language of the poetry, I was just really struck when I turn a page and I read, I think you said, I can't remember whether you said I'm not an American girl or I am also an American girl. So I'd like you to talk about this contrast between these, the ways in which you were taught or uh, which you grew up in this, this um, gendered uh, headspace in this specific contextual patriarchy manifestation of patriarchy and then how that is being contrasted to that American girl. American girl was a threat. <laughs> like when I was growing up, um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people in the community have this, right? Like we could not, um, the, if I was an American girl, I would be one of those girls that was, uh, and it's also very, um, sexist, uh, it, if I were a cheerleader, I would have been an American girl. If I were uh, one of the girls that was out on the side of the road, like this is, this is exactly how my mother, you know, my mother who called herself a feminist, by the way. And, and for, and, and, and I do believe, um, I guess one of the most helpful sort of frameworks that I've heard recently is that 
by Ibram X. Kendi, who says that it's impossible to be non-racist and because it, racism is baked into the bread of our society. And so you can only be an anti-racist, but it's impossible to be non-racist, which is also to say uh, it's impossible, I think, to be non-sexist. Um, and so uh, for... You know, so growing up, I was uh, being an American girl meant uh, you were wearing. I'm going to give you a lot of like anecdotes as I get to the point, which is like to wear crop tops and wear shorts and to like date boys and to do all of the things that like all of these like behavioral, um, uh, performative, like visual cues, uh, to not be religious was to be an American girl. Uh, we were, even though everybody in my family, like we speak really good Arabic. Um, we were still thought of as Americanized in, in the school that I went to, um, in my high school because we were secular. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, of course my family, like there's a short, um, okay. Well, short story is, is that, uh, I didn't know if I was Sunni or Shia growing up. Um, I was one time some like post to, it was 2003. Okay. Of course it was 2003. Somebody, one of the girls in my like class, I was in 10th grade. So it was a little bit, it was 2000 and, uh, 2003, 2004. And so she stops and one of the girls stops and she's like, is your family Sunni or Shia? And I was like, oh, I don't really know. I guess we're Sydney. And then I go home and then she doesn't talk to me. She doesn't talk to me for the rest of the day. Then I go home. I asked my mom, like, mama, what are we, Sydney or Shia? She's like, we're nothing, Camelia. <laughs> and I was like, no, mama, please, what are we? She's like, Camelia, we're nothing. And I was like, what's Theta? You know, like, what's Theta? What's Amtofatmi? Like, what, what are they? What does it say on the papers? You know, like, what does it say on our ID? She's like, we're Shia. Okay, khalas, we're Shia. And I was like, all right, fine. I go to school the next day and I tell her, by the way, I'm Shia. She's like, uh, uh, I knew you were Shia. And then she started talking to me again. So... Oh, which is all to say that I grew up in a secular family that was, um, religion was not necessarily a part of our daily life, but it was always, it was something that surrounded us in the community. And even if my family was not explicitly religious, patriarchy doesn't only live in religion. Um, patriarchy lives in secular families as well in Americanized families. A patriarchy exists in America as well. Like there, this whole sort of, um, question about the focus on, you know, gendered violence in the Arab world or in the Muslim world is really, um, absurd, uh, because as they are invading Afghanistan, for example, to save Brown women from Brown men, uh, the America has its own patriarchal violences that are also a whole in this country. And that are present among the troops who are doing the invading. <laughs> I yeah. mean, uh, yeah, it's, I think that we love to talk about gendered violence in other parts of the world specifically to make it, to make us feel like it's someone else's problem. It's a way of deflecting from, from our own issues with this. I mean, uh, one of the major, um, we, you talked earlier about, uh, racially motivated gun violence. Uh, the more, the, if you look at the numbers of people who are actually killed with guns, many, the number of people who are attacked for their gender is actually greater than the number of people who are attacked explicitly for their race. So that, I mean, this is a huge issue. Domestic violence is one of the worst, one of the most frequent forms of gun violence among other types of violence. So mm-hmm. 
I, I didn't say that very well, but I hope people understand what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I just, you know, to me, I don't know if you've read Nadine Nebert's work. Uh, well, Nadine Nebert is the reason I'm allowed to, I've, I, Nadine Nebert is the reason why I found my way through theory and the American paradigm in order to exist as myself. I met her when I was 17, no, no, but 17, uh, I was in college. It was my third year of college. I audited women in war in the Middle East with her. And um, her work has been absolutely, she's in the book. Uh, Arab and Arab American feminisms create space to not come out. You know, we don't have to leave our families in order to be gay, trans, bisexual, all like how, of course we want ways to survive while thriving in our identities as um, in our gender and sexual identities and orientations, as well as existing within our cultural context. Like we have the right to do that. But in the meantime, the whole coming out surveillance sort of focused uh, uh, way of defining, um, sorry, I'm I'm going off. No, no, it's the proper Arabness, the good, you know, the, the almost like the halal Arab. You know? Yes, yeah, it's, to, it's to not be out and queer. But Nadine Nebir was, she, what were you going to say about Well, Nadine? I was just going to say, because for me, you know, she writes very specifically about the American girl, you know, yeah. the, the, and we're not talking about the doll here. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, um, I think we've actually run out of time. We've, uh, we're, we're almost at the 50 minute mark. So um, I really can't thank you enough for sharing this work with us, uh, for, for, for writing this work. I can't wait. I have not read the play. I have to see the play. Has it been performed here? It was performed in four sold out shows in December of 2021 at the Arab American National Museum. Um, it was COVID time. So I, I know maybe not every, we didn't get to do the outreach that we wanted to, and I should have gone directly to your department and I apologize for that. That's my bad. But uh, it's av- I can send you the link. And Please the send link me the is link. Available online. Please send me the on link. YouTube. Yeah, and we'll post the link uh, when we post the podcast information too, so the audience can uh, can watch it too. I really look forward to seeing that. Well, I wish you all the luck in the world with your work. I can't wait to see what's next. Please give your mother a kiss on each cheek for me and your father too. Uh, I miss seeing them. Uh, it's been too long, um, but I can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you, Sally, so much for having me and for continuing this conversation that you probably started with my parents decades ago. (laughs) And so I'm very grateful to be on this end with you. Thanks for your work. Today's episode was hosted by Sally Howell. It was produced by Muhammad Jafar and Esma Baban and edited by Muhammad Jafar. Our theme song was composed by Isra Darwish and our logo was created by Maisara Abdelhaq. Scene Jeem is brought to you by the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan-Dearborn and the Arab American National Museum. Scene Jeem is funded by the University of Michigan Arts Initiative and the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. Check out our website, scenegeempodcast.org, for more information on our guests and to view videos of their readings. Thank you for listening.